And the fruit of that liberation has been and continues to be an increasing trajectory towards moral relativism. But that cultural train that took off in the 1960s is in some ways derailing right now. With the revelations around Harvey Weinstein, which were nothing new, nor were they unique, as as has become very clear, it has set off a reassessment of where we are at. A flood of accusations and revelations have burst forth. And this is a moment of cultural change. Make no mistake, now is a time when our culture is changing right before our very eyes. But before you can determine what kind of changes you want to make in a society and how you want to live, you need to identify what has gone wrong. And for a large and influential part of our society, the answer has come down to this, toxic masculinity. Now, what is toxic masculinity, you ask? I'm glad you asked. I went to the authority. I asked Google. Google defines toxic masculinity this way. It says the concept of toxic masculinity is used in the social sciences to describe traditional norms and behavior among men in contemporary American and European society that are associated with detrimental social and psychological effects. I have all kinds of questions. Why only American and European? But that's another question. That is succinctly the the summary of the problem for much of our society right now. They think that this is the fundamental problem, masculinity of this toxic sort. Notice this isn't men, they would say. This is masculinity because men are programmed to masculinity by society. And if they're behaving badly, what we need to do is reprogram them. Of course, we can do that. But what exactly, how are we going to do this? What exactly are we saying about men? Uh, The New York Times had a very interesting article on this this week. In that, they say the concept of, uh, excuse me, what exactly are men being accused of? What is the difference between harassment and assault and inappropriate conduct? There is a disturbing lack of clarity about the terms being thrown around a lack of distinction regarding what the spectrum of objectionable behavior is. You see, since sex is not moral, in their view, it gets really tricky to find the right words to define what's really gone wrong. I mean, I mean, really, could cows have objectionable sexual behavior? I don't think so. But the most fascinating part of this article was this sentence. We are witnessing the remoralization of sex, not via the Judeo-Christian ethos, but via a legalistic corporate consensus. We are witnessing the remoralization of sex, not via the Judeo-Christian ethos, but via a legalistic corporate consensus. That's the New York Times this week. So let me interpret that. In the 1960s, we demoralized sex, took morality out of it. That program didn't really go the way we hoped. 
It unleashed a lot of bad things, so now we are seeking a new social consensus on how to remoralize it, provided that we keep the Judeo-Christian ethic out. The Bible cannot speak into this situation because we are free. We are going to get freedom and equality on our own terms. In the words of that great philosopher, Inigo Montoya, that word you keep saying, I don't think it means what you think it means. Indeed, it doesn't. That kind of freedom, it does not mean what you think it means. Well, this topic has been on my heart for a while. I've been thinking is, I've watched these things happening in our society. I've been concerned with this. And, And here's my concern, is that if we as Christians do not consciously think about these questions, the way the Bible teaches us to think, we are going to unconsciously or subconsciously, we are going to, without thinking about it, we are going to adopt the world's view of sexuality, of masculinity, of the genders, and of the way God has created things to be. We're going to accept a secularized view that will not deliver the freedom that we crave. So my goal this morning is to broadly come back and restate biblical sexual morality. To give some biblical guidelines and hooks for how you and I, our minds, are to think about and approach these questions, and specifically, masculinity. Maybe another time I could perhaps speak to to femininity, but, but this morning I'm going to be thinking specifically about masculinity. The Bible says to be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And that's what I want us to try to do consciously, starting today. This is an ongoing process. In 2018, if we are not to be conformed to our culture, we are not to be conformed to our world, we're going to have to stop. You are going to have to consciously say, no, what they're telling me on TV or in the New York Times or another, that's not right. The word of God says differently. That's got to be a conscious choice that we make. And I want to challenge you to do that this morning. Now, before I begin, two things. Number one, if you are visiting with us, I want you to know this is not our normal way of preaching. Normally, we open the Bible, we go to a particular text of Scripture, and we preach that one, and we go through it. This is what we call topical. That is, I'm, I'm addressing this topic of masculinity, of, of, of toxic masculinity, and what the Bible has to say about it, and what the Bible has to teach us. And so I'm going to try to do a biblical theology. I'm going to sweep through the Bible. We're going to be flipping through a lot of places. Second, I can't say here all that needs to be said. I don't think you want to go to lunch at 4 o'clock. We're going to try and do this in a timely manner. And so I, as such, am going to have to be brief. I'm going to have to speak in generalized sweeps. I can't nuance everything I'm going to say. So please hear me charitably. Please, if if I say something that offends you, please come talk to me. It's not my intention to be offensive. My intention is to relate the Word of God. If the Word of God is offensive, so be it. But I do not want to be. Well, let's begin with this topic of masculinity where it begins. Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, you see that, uh, that, that Kevin read for us this morning in the opening. 
There we see God coming, and he decides to create man. It's interesting. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Man in this verse is male and female. They are created together. They are part of the image of God. The things that are given to man, this dominion to rule over the earth, the inherent dignity, morality, the call to fruitfulness, everything that is true of the man is true of the woman. And we find in all these matters of being, of of intelligence, of of everything that is distinctively human, there is no difference between the male and the female. They are equal in the eyes of God, and they were created for the same ends. But what we find in chapter 2 is a restatement. It tells how that came to be, how there is male and female, how God made that creation. And what we find in the explanation in chapter 2 is it goes into detail that that these two, male and female, are different, that they were created in complementary ways to complement one another. They are not interchangeable parts. You can't just switch them. They each have a role. Adam is created from the ground, and Eve is made out of Adam. Adam rejoices over her when he sees her. He names her, and God declares that they are now one flesh. And there is a natural harmony between Adam and Eve. This is the way God intended it. They're not designed to do the same work. Both are tasked with being fruitful, but for the man, it's the fruitfulness of the ground and plowing it, and for the woman, it's the fruitfulness of the womb. And they are each, each cannot do their job without the other. And they work together in harmony. Contrary to our culture, gender and gender roles are not social constructs. There are social expressions of how those things ought to be played out, and we do need to be aware of that, that it's not going to look the same in every culture, and and those things can change. But the idea of masculinity and femininity is embedded in the creation. God created this. It's his idea. Now, just a caution. The Bible is not telling us that we need to go back before the 1950s, because that was the good time, right? Right? June and Ward Cleaver are not the model couple. That's not what we're trying to go back to. This is not a a social reactionary or a social conservatism. It's not what I'm espousing here this morning. I don't believe that's what the Word of God talks about. What we're looking at here is Adam and Eve before the fall. They are created in this way. So the, the basic notion of gender and the gender roles are in God's creation, and they are good They are to the fulfillment of these two people. But of course you know what happens if you don't, spoiler alert, Genesis chapter 3, the fall. Sin enters into the world. Basically you have a snake that comes in and starts talking to Eve and she is deceived and she convinces her husband to join her in this sin and they eat the fruit and we find that Adam has sinned through his passivity. He sat there and watched as the snake talked to his wife, as the creation instructed his wife on spiritual matters while he was silent. Eve 
Eve sinned by usurping Adam's role, by taking the position of spiritual leadership, and by listening to a talking snake. The result of all of this is that Adam's leadership goes from being kind and good to domineering. That the woman goes from being a helpmeet and a compliment to being manipulative. And so it is that the heart of human relationships, the very most intimate relationship that God created for men and women to enter into becomes a point of struggle. It becomes a, a, a striving and a fighting and, and there is not peace in the home. Sin bred pain in marriage and it's going to seep out into all of creation. I want you to see this very suddenly in, in, in Genesis chapter 4. You have this descendant of, of Adam and Eve. They have a son named Cain. Cain kills his brother Abel. Cain has children. And you come down and you have these really chilling words from a man named Lamech, a descendant of Cain. Chapter 4, verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a younger man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. You see it. You find immediately polygamy, violence. When men start going their own way, they make these choices of their own mind, and you see it does not end well. He's boasting over his violence to his polygamous wives. Well, the descent into sin, this type of a cycle, I think is best illustrated in the book of Judges. You can turn there if you wish. I'm, I'm just going to mention several things as we go through. If you're taking notes, you can just jot them down. We're not going to read a lot of the book of Judges, but what I want to do is point out a couple key ideas. The, the, the recurring phrase in the book of Judges is this. Every man did that which is right in his own eyes. That's what Lamech did. He's doing what's right in his own eyes. Lamech was casting off God's morality. God created one wife for Adam, and he has two. You're seeing this casting off of God's morality and a taking on of whatever is right in his own eyes, and we see this play out in the book of Judges. There are a number of themes that run through the book of Judges, but I want to specifically touch on this one, of, of this idea of man and woman, of the, the male-female relationship. I think Josh will likely preach about this on a future sermon, so I'm not going to go into detail on it now, but I want you to see the trajectory. When the book of Judges opens. The first judge that we meet is a man named Othniel in chapter 1. He uh, is, is valiant in the conquest of the land. He goes up and he takes the, the, one of the cities out of the hand of the Anakim that Caleb had seen, the giants that everyone was scared of. And Othniel is bold and leads the people to go and to take the city. And as a reward, Caleb gives him his daughter Oxa for a wife. And then you find Oxa turn around to her father and she says, give me a blessing. Give me the springs that go with this land, the, the water that we can be fruitful. 
And in chapter 3, you see Othniel come up again, and there's an invasion of the land, and Othniel is the one who delivers the people of God and gives them rest. Othniel and Oxa become our heroes, in a sense. They are an ideal couple, a protector, a deliverer, fruitfulness, a blessed woman. The book of Judges goes downhill from there. In chapter 4, we find the story of Deborah and Barak. God calls Barak to lead, to go out and fight the armies of the Midianites, and he won't go without Deborah. He is fearful to go. He wants the woman to lead him, and God says, fine, and Deborah goes with him. God says, because of this, the victory is going to go to a woman, and so it's another woman, Yael, Jael. She kills the commander of the enemy army. It doesn't reflect well upon the men. The next one, the next judges, is Gideon. And we find him winning a great victory and delivering the people of Israel from their enemies. But in Judges chapter 8, verse 30, we discover that he has 70 sons. Now, in my great knowledge of biology, let me tell you, probably means he also has 70 daughters, give or take. Also drawing from my great knowledge of biology, this means he has more than one wife. He's got not two wives or three wives. I mean, he's got a harem. That's the only way you can have these 70 sons. This man has taken himself a harem. This is a symbol of kingship, of domination, of exploitation. Do you think, I'm so proud I'm the eighth wife? You see where this is going? It isn't pretty. Another judge, Samson, in chapters 13 to 16, we find Samson. He pushes it in another direction. He's not content to stick with the daughters of of Israel. He wants to go out after, and he's philandering after the Dagon-worshipping daughters of the Philistines, their enemies. And he pursues them. The story ends up with him enslaved and his eyes gouged out and grinding grain like an ox, serving the Philistines. And then he commits suicide by pulling down a temple and destroying both himself and the Philistines with him. It's not a pretty picture for the men or the women. But there's yet another step down. And in the final story in the book of Judges, chapters 19 to 21, we find a Levite, a priest of God who has a concubine, unnamed. It's this woman. And of course, they end up in a, in a fight. She runs away. He goes and gets her. And on the return trip, she ends up being raped and murdered by the Benjamites. All of Israel is plunged into a civil war. It's followed by a mass abduction of women because all the women in Benjamin have wiped out. And so there's this mass abduction and they're married off to their abductors. Heartwarming, isn't it? Friends, that's what happens when every man does that which is right in his own eyes. Friends, that's the biblical definition of toxic masculinity. It is masculinity which is unhinged from the word of God, which does not follow the law of God, but makes up its own law. When we make up our own morality, we will find ourselves degraded. There is a dehumanizing and exploitative bent in the human heart. Selfish desires always percolate out 
when we reject the word of God. This is true in our culture now as it was just in the culture then. Ungodly abuse is today being met with ungodly solutions. And we as Christians must be conscious not to follow this trajectory. If if the problem was created by doing what was right in our own eyes, the solution is not going to be found by doing what is right in our own eyes as well. Now, if all this sounds like doom and gloom and you're thinking, wow, this is the darkest sermon I could imagine, let let me remind you that Christianity entered into a pagan world worse than what we're looking at. Far worse. Sexual licentiousness wasn't just women. It was young boys who were being exploited. It was an ugly time. And Christianity came into that environment and reasserted the word of God, reasserted the Judeo-Christian view on morality and sexuality and what it is to be a man. And it spoke clearly into that culture unhesitatingly, and it said that we do not have authority in ourselves. God is the authority, and we're going to live according to his word. And so what is that moral teaching? That's what I want to turn to now. Flipping your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. There's much that can be said. I have no way that I can summarize all of it, but I want to draw your attention first here to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 3 to 11. Paul is writing to the, the church here at Ephesus, a very carnal and immoral place, full of immorality. And he says to them in verse 3, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Our behavior originates in the affections of our heart. We are called, in chapter 5, verse 1, I didn't read that there, but we're called to be imitators of God, to imitate his character. And he calls us saints. And when our affections are for righteousness, we're going to orient ourselves in the right direction. And what is in our hearts is what comes out of the mouth. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And so what you have here is immediately Paul warns them about their speech. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. C.S. Lewis said the oldest joke in the world is that we have bodies. It's true, spirits with bodies and genders. 
there is something just comical about that. There is something comical about the human condition. And I don't want you to think that there can be no laughter. We're not being prudish. We're not to have straight faith. Oh, we can never joke about sex. That's not what it says. What it says is that there is to be no laughing at what God has called sin. There is to be no joking about morality, what is right and wrong. That is what there is to be no joking about. There is to be no crude jokes. There is to be no jokes that are degrading to another person, either individually or to to men or to women in general. This is degrading. This is the work of the flesh. Christian, guard your tongue. Let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth. Put into our current context, we would say there is to be no locker room talk that is inappropriate. Child of God, that is not to come out of your mouth. So what comes out of your mouth? What is it like to be around you? What do people think about marriage and sexuality and gender from being around you? What comes out of your mouth? On these things. Does, does it make other people respect marriage and think more highly of what God has created? Or is what come out of your mouth snarky about the opposite sex? Cynical, derisive of husbands or wives. And all of this, make no mistake, what comes out of our mouths culminates in actions. It doesn't stay in the mouth, it translates into behavior. And because of this behavior, Paul specifically says that the wrath of God is coming upon them. When sin is conceived, it brings forth death. The fruition of these acts is that you will have no part in the kingdom of God, the eternal inheritance in Christ that he talks about. He says, if you are part of this, you will not have that inheritance. This is important. This is a matter of life and death. And so it is that when we approach these matters, it doesn't mean that we never laugh about our embodiedness, but it does mean that we have a wholesome fear of morality and what is right and wrong, and we do not make a mock of sin. Paul also here warns us about who we are with. He says not to spend excessive time and create the friendships with those who are comfortable with immorality. You see that in verse 7. Be careful. Bad company corrupts good manners, good morals, Paul says. Are there areas in your life where you may find that you have made peace with immorality? Perhaps movies or TV, set of friends, some environment uh, that that you get into and you, you fall back into a fleshly ways of thinking and life. Friends, ask God to show those to you. Take steps to stop those behaviors. Cut that off. Go to someone you trust to hold you accountable. Sin hangs on to you best in the dark. Bringing it into the light loosens its grip. Another text that Paul instructs us from, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we find further instructions on how it is we're to behave, what it is that God's will for us is in these matters. Paul says, then finally then, brothers, verse 1, 
We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity but to holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is God's will for your life. Sanctification. That's more important than your education. It's more important than your career. It's more important than your marriage or lack thereof. You don't have to worry this morning that perhaps you're missing God's will for your life because it's right here to pursue that sanctification. And you can do that this morning. You can do that beginning immediately. You have not missed God's will for your life. What does that sanctification look like? Well, self-control. That is one of the fruits of the Spirit, and I think it's a quiet one. It pops up in a surprisingly large number of places in the New Testament, but you don't often hear sermons about it. You might hear love, joy, peace, and those sorts of things, but self-control. But it is a central part of God's will for us to learn how to discipline our appetites. Our appetites for food, money, security or, or, or control, approval of others, comfort. And here, very pointedly, he says sex. God's will for you is for his spirit to work through your spirit to master your flesh. That is God's will for us. That is what God calls his children to. That is the noble calling. That is where freedom is to be found. And when we do not do that, when there is this lack of self-control, when there is this sexual licentiousness, Paul here calls it fraud. He says, do not defraud others. Do not defraud fellow Christians sexually. Peter tells us that the marriage bed is pure and undefiled. Sex within marriage is right and good. And further, it is perverse to withhold sex within marriage. Paul pointedly told them not to do that in 1 Corinthians 7. Sex is supposed to mark out marriage. So by contrast, to indulge in that which is the symbol of marriage when not married is sin. It is an exploitation of the other person. And to be clear, a fiancé is not a wife. We intend to get married someday is not we are married today. We cannot cover sin like that with a, that sort of fig leaf. And make no mistake, that is defrauding the other person. Sex outside the covenant of marriage is fraud. 
Now, the one great moral axiom of our day that our society seems to hang on to, and the, the one thing that we can agree on, it seems, is consent. Sex is to be between two consenting adults, and whatever they choose is moral. But I tell you, looking here at the scripture, that the Bible says it is abuse even with consent. Why? Because sex is not primarily an agreement between two adults. God created us for a purpose, a noble and a fulfilling purpose. He created us for his ends. And when we are sexually immoral, we are trading that away. We're trading it for a pot of bean soup. I beg you, do not be foolish. Not only do you lose the blessing of God in this way, you invite his wrath upon you. God is the revenger. You see that in verse 6. He sees all sorts of fraud, and that's why Paul warns them. God sees this, he knows it, he knows the fraud, he knows the injustice, and he is going to act upon it. It's not fundamentally about us. It's fundamentally about our creator. We are not free to make these decisions in and of ourselves. God is the one who has made this decision. Let me pause for a moment and say, too, here, what I'm laying out is ideal situations, right? This is the way Christians are supposed to live. And it obviously brings up a question of what happens when Christians don't live this way. What happens when people in the church do not live this way? If you've been in a situation of abuse, this is not a call to endure it. This is not a... this place, this church, is not to be a safe place for abusers, and it will not be. Hollywood can get around, finally, to excommunicating its abusers. You better believe that we will. Shame is often, often what holds people back in these matters, too. And in that case, let me remind you of something. Jesus Christ died not just for our guilt. He died for our shame. He bore our shame in his body on the tree. He is the one who enables us to be able to stand without shame before a holy God. Do not let the fear of shame hold you back. Well, let's conclude by thinking about the quintessential man, Jesus. In case you didn't know, all men are toxic to some degree because we are sinners. We're all tainted. But we do know that there was a man once who was without sin. And that man, Jesus, was the quintessential man. He embodied masculinity as God intended it. And so let's think about this, the virtuous man, for a few moments. I want you to know first that he did not conform to his culture. An unmarried 30-year-old rabbi? That was not supposed to be. That was unheard of. But he didn't care to meet the expectations of his society. He cared to meet the expectations of his father. When a woman came and washed his feet with her hair, it was a cultural no-no. 
But understand that Jesus saw her primarily as a human being, not a sexual being. He interacted with women as equals and in a comfortable way that scandalized the religious. He was a cultural nonconformist, not because he was a rebel. He was not. But because he understood how his father thought about and treated women. He did not accept his culture's views uncritically, and he did not conform to them. He lived according to the word of God, not man. He sets the example for us to follow. Looking at the life of Christ, too, we ought to note that celibacy does not mean that you are repressed or less fulfilled. Our culture, as I mentioned in the 1960s, the the rallying cry has been this idea of sexual freedom, and a premium is put on self-expression, and I have to be authentic in myself. That's true freedom, and that's being a real human being. That's authentic. Though Jesus never married, he was not sexually repressed. He said, there are those who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. Praise God for that. As a church, let us be careful not to make too much of marriage or act as though singleness were some sort of a plague that needed to be gotten rid of or cured. Singleness may very well be a gift from God. It it routinely is. God's will for us is sanctification, and you don't need to be married to do that. Marriage can help in sanctification, sometimes in ways you may not want. It is a gift, but so is singleness. And let me also remind you that that, that Jesus more often speaks of our physical family and our familiar, our, our marital relationships as an impediment to following God more than as an aid. Go look it up. You can check that. It's more often spoken of as a danger to following after God spiritually. According to the Bible, our true family, that the real family that we need to think of ourselves as being in is a spiritual family. It is the children of God. It is your brothers and sisters who are here. And let me suggest it is those of us who are married to whom that is a more difficult task than to the single. Let us be careful to think biblically and not culturally about celibacy, about the unmarried state, and about our families. Jesus is the model of virtuous masculinity. He is the one who sets the standard. He's the one that defines it. The counterintuitive truth that Jesus exposed is that we are most free when we are most under control. Jesus came to do the will of his Father. Freedom, and especially sexual freedom, is found not in doing whatever you please. That sort of living invariably results in anarchy, exploitation, degradation, etc. You see it in Judges. Freedom is found in living as we were created to live. When our hearts desire what is right, 
then we are able to pursue whatever it is we wish without fear of sin and regret when we love righteousness. This sort of living leads to human flourishing. And what we find is that Jesus used his freedom to live sacrificially. He was the perfect example of this. Masculinity is not necessarily being wild at heart, going out into the woods and killing something, though I heartily approve of that. I think Scott would too. It's a very manly thing to do. Masculinity is not jumping out of a perfectly functional airplane, though I approve of that, and I think it's a very masculine thing to do as well. No, true masculinity, when we're thinking about the scriptures, when we're talking about the Bible, true masculinity as embodied and lived out by Jesus Christ in the scriptures is a gentle and patient, calm resolve to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Self-control and determination are what really mark out true men. Jesus was the example of this sort of self-control. He had such self-control that he could choose to go to the cross to absorb the wrath of God, a wrath that should have fallen upon the sexually immoral. He could suffer the shame and the humiliation and every form of dehumanization that humans could devise for something that was not his own fault. He patiently endured sinners for their good and God's glory. And in all of this, he didn't waver. If you're here this morning and you're listening to this and you're thinking and you're feeling like you are condemned by the Bible's sexual code, let me assure you that that does not need to be the case. Jesus is the one who absorbed the wrath of God for all who would repent of their sin, sexual and otherwise, and would trust in him. The world needs that sort of masculinity. Without him, our hope is lost. He is the true knight in shining armor. He is the savior of the bride. He is the indispensable man. And we can trust him. But the world and this church needs something else. It needs men here who are willing to step up and imitate that man. Men who are willing to walk as Christ's disciples. Men who are willing to sacrifice themselves for the good of those they lead. Men of conviction, men of character, men of commitment. Will that be you? Let us pray.